0: Hello and welcome to the EDH RecCast. My name is Joey Schultz and I am joined as always by my fantastic co-hosts. First up, the guy who could probably do a pretty good cosplay of the character Will Kenrith. It's Matt Morgan. Joey, I tried coming up with a joke about social
1: distancing. This was as close as I could get.
0: (laughs) Well done, Matt. That one really tickles me. I love it. Uh, Up next, the guy who could
2: probably do a pretty good cosplay of a goat token. That's Dana Roach. I just want to thank you guys for giving me the one excuse I've had this week to not wear pajamas. So thank you both very much for that. I don't think I understand what you mean. I, I am now the guy who walks his dog in a robe and slippers. That's now, now my life. <laughs> and, and and I know what you're thinking. You're thinking like, big deal, but it's not a long robe, Joey. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Okay, so we're just going to move right on
0: through that because this is the EDH oh, wow. Retcast. What we're here to talk about is how Ediatrek is the best deck building resource on the web for the commander format, compiling data from deck lists all over the internet to provide helpful recommendations for new commander decks. And here on the podcast, what we like to do is to give all that data just a little bit more context. Fellas, what is our topic this week? This week we're gonna talk about the data hiding in your deck. What is there that you aren't really seeing? indeed there's so much going on not just on the website percentage-wise and numbers-wise and probability and popularity there's actually a whole lot of secret numbers that you should probably know about hiding inside your commander deck as well and knowing those numbers being a little bit more familiar with them can help improve your gameplay so that's what we want to talk about here but before we get started we also want to give a huge thank you to the folks at the command zone josh lee quiet and the command zone team are doing an amazing job at bringing this production to all of our listeners and viewers it is such an awesome level of professionality and it's just i'm i'm always beyond words every time that i see one of these episodes i'm just it's so good to see what they're able to do providing all of this a uh, huge upgrade to the show and we really will never be able to stop thanking them uh, for how much work they've done to improve the show um and we also have some other folks to thank though and those are our sponsors so we do need to thank card kingdom and tcgplayer.com
1: they both are amazing sponsors they help keep us going on here um you can support the show just by going to cardkingdom.com slash EDHREC. That takes you directly to a store. They know that we sent you over and you get all their great pricing that you would normally have otherwise. Also, if you wanna to go to TCG Player, if that's your store of choice, you can just click on any TCG Player price that is listed on any card on EDHREC. That will also take you to their website. You can buy that card. If you need anything else, say you have some spare time these days, re-sleeve any of your decks, make some upgrades. Maybe you just built a new deck and you don't have any more deck boxes. Both Card Kingdom and TCG Player can help you with all those needs. They'll get you fixed right up.
0: Yeah, indeed. We are also very grateful to them. Amazing sponsors of the show. Uh, so yeah, a whole bunch of support happening here. We aren't able to gather at this particular time uh, for Magic, but that doesn't mean that we're not all still together. It's really great to have all of the support coming in from the community to bring some really fun, awesome content to uh, everyone out there. So let's get into that content now. We're going to be talking about the data hiding in your deck. There aren't just numbers on EDHR. There's also some really- Really important figures hiding in your decks too and knowing those important numbers uh, can really help improve gameplay so today that is what we're going to be looking at is all of those secret numbers some of them might be a little bit more obvious and some of them are a little less obvious so we just want to go through those because they can be really great to know about when you are playing let's get started right away dana what is the first piece of data that we're going to be talking
2: about that is hiding in people's decks so the first piece of data we're going to talk about is relevant in voltron decks especially but It's relevant in a lot of decks where you are in a position to kill someone with commander damage and those three numbers are 7 11 and 21 and the reason they're relevant is when you attack someone for seven damage it means you can kill them in three hits if you hit someone for 11 that means you can kill them in two hits because it puts you at lethal commander damage and 21 means you can one-shot somebody so if you're using you know equipment or auras or or some way to buff up creatures The buff that takes you from 11 to 15 damage is really not nearly as important or relevant as a buff that takes you from, say, 7 to 11, because that 15 damage doesn't, generally speaking, change when you kill somebody, but the jump from 7 to 11 oftentimes does. Yeah, this is a
0: huge thing for Voltron decks. It's very important to know when you should be deploying those different buff up enchantments, because if you're just going from like, you know, 7 to 10 or something like that, that's actually not going to get you anywhere faster. You are still killing someone in the same number of turns with your commander damage, so it's not as useful as if you were to get one extra point. So that might actually mean that you maybe sandbag some of the pump spells that you have in your hand, some of the enchantments or some of the equipment, um, and don't go straight for equipping them or enchanting them uh, right away, and you maybe save them for later in case something happens to your commander so that you're not completely blown out. That might actually be a strategy that is informed by the fact that you know these numbers 7, 11, and 21.
2: Well, one thing that makes a difference too here is double strike really makes a difference. And I'll use an example from from the real world in a deck of mine. My Sphinx tribal deck has Asperia Supreme Judge as the commander who deals six damage. I've got a couple different effects in the deck that give Asperia double strike or give Sphinxes in general double strike. Being able to turn that six damage into twelve turns that into a two hit commander damage clock versus if Spirit was a five damage commander, then it wouldn't make the mathematical I still need to get three hits in. So uh, it also makes any difference on double strike or you know some kind of a damage double like gratuitous violence or a berserk where you're doubling the damage it's gonna deal in one shot. Um, the specifics really matter there.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And this can also inform your deck-building choices when you're trying to decide between two different enchantments or something like that. The one that gives a boost that your commander's natural 4 power, for example, and it moves it up to 7, or if your commander's a natural 7 power and this other enchantment would move it up to 11 power, that actually might make you want to put that enchantment or equipment into the deck over something else that doesn't quite get you to one of these key numbers.
1: Yeah, one thing I know I keep in mind with Valduk is uh, how many times I can get to six with any double strike uh, equipment as well. Because um, when you get six and double strike, it, it goes from 11 to 12, but then that also makes it the same two turn clock. That's kind of mm-hmm. what I'm focusing on is trying to find as close to these numbers as I can, whether it's with double strike or just anything that's going to increase Valdex power in addition to all the elementals that I make. But if I ever go do go for you know commander damage, which I do every now and then, uh, these numbers are very, very important to me, keeping in mind how many of those equipments are going to have a plus four or a plus three, any type of power buff that's going to get me close to these numbers so I can predict how many times I'm going to have to hit somebody to knock them out of the game.
0: Yeah, very important data, very important numbers to know if you're wielding one of those Voltron decks. What is our next hidden figure, our hidden piece of data here that we're going to talk about? So the next point we're going to talk
1: about and maybe even the most important if you ask me is going to be the number of basic lands that you're playing in your deck so this number can be hugely important for you know any landfall decks that you might be playing landfall decks are fairly common and it's one thing that we need to keep in mind as it can cost you the game or win you the game you know you may have seen Omnath Locus of Rage, for example, they're misjudging the number of basics they're playing in their deck because they play to Boundless Realms to get a bunch of elementals, but then they lose track of how many are left in the deck for future ramping. Uh, some things that people have done is writing it writing it down on a piece of paper, you know, have your life pad going, write how many basics you should have left in your deck going on. Uh, I've talked about the combo of Perilous Forays plus Amulet of Vigor several times, which is capable of pulling every single basic land out of an Omnath Locus of Rage deck. But what does that mean for future ramp cards you might be drawing later you need to keep that number in mind or another you know, just artifact that i've played in many many decks is sword of the animist how many triggers are you planning on getting out of a sword of the animist over the course of a game in addition to any other ramp you might be playing you know if you're playing a, a token deck second har- or harvest season excuse me might pull every single basic out because you're playing less than 10 it's not that hard to get a bunch of tokens tapped. So, keeping in mind how many basic lands you are playing and might have available at any given time is going to be very important, especially if you're counting on getting as many as possible onto the battlefield.
0: Yeah, I'm. I'm. I'm going to have a quick exercise. Raise your hand if you've ever cracked a, a fetch land like an evolving wilds or even you know one of the expensive expensive ones like Verdant Catacombs. Raise your hand if you've ever cracked one of those to go search for a basic and realized you didn't have one because I am raising my hand right now. That is. The thing I, that I. I too. am raising failed my to hand find for sure yeah like knowing the number of basics like you mentioned matt maybe having it written down on a slip of paper in the deck box somewhere so you know oh yeah there are You know, 18 in this deck or something like that, that can really be uh, pretty big. Because if you're relying on those elementals or any of those landfall triggers and then you actually don't have any left, that can really, really swing the game, absolutely. Or before you begin that perilous forest combo that you talked about, knowing the number of lands there would be a good thing to know so that you know how many of those triggers you'll get. That can absolutely give you a huge strategic advantage in the game. It's funny that you talk so much about the number of basic lands because you usually advocate running more, but I'm actually going to throw a card out there that also cares about the number of basic lands. you play but that actually once right, you to let's play, hear it let's hear it play fewer of them that's hermit druid of course joeys talking about a card that fills the <laughs> graveyard hermit uh- druid will I know, you're not surprised. Hermit Druid will tap and then mill cards off the top of your deck until you find a basic land, which is really great. If you were running a very small number of basic lands, then that can fill your graveyard with tons of cards. It can put 20, it can put 50. I've probably milled myself for some over around 60 or 70 with this card before. It's crazy, crazy powerful. But if I forget how many basic lands I have in my deck when I try to activate a Hermit Druid, I could accidentally mill myself and then die on the next turn. And I like a big graveyard, but I don't like a graveyard that's so big that my deck has no cards left in it. So that is an important thing to know as well. If you're playing a Hermit Druid, you really need to know the data in your deck as it pertains to the number of basic lands that you have.
2: Yeah, Joey, if you, if you did mill yourself out that way, you would deserve it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, one little <laughs> trick I use to keep track of this too is I do have a Min and Den uh Landfall slash Lands Matters deck, and all the mountains around the deck are ones from the World Championship decks so with are gold border. So mm. that way, when I'm flipping through doing a tutor, I can really easily without having to obviously count, you know, the graveyard land and what's in play. I can just thumb through and be like, I have, only have two left. So. It's easy to find them, for one, when I'm searching them up off of fetch land, and it's easy to kind of keep track when I'm digging through my library of how many are left. Interesting. I, I think that I know
0: of a, of a person or two who's also done that with white-bordered lands, too, uh, to try and help out. But oh, the aesthetics my, of that my forests
2: just... are white-borders, so that's how I find the forests. Same way. Oh. So mountains yeah. are gold-border, forests are white. A man, a man of class.
0: <laughs> yeah, the aesthetics of that give me the heebie-jeebies. So I'm not sure. I can complete. But I like I like that you know those things. That's, those are other strategies that you can use to help make things a little bit more efficient. But the basic land numbers totally matter for sure. And I don't think that's actually the only way that basic lands can sometimes matter too.
2: Well, it, it matters. You know, for things like Crypt Ghast. if you're in a two colored deck, there needs to be enough swamp to justify running Crypt Gas for the most part. Um, you know, Cabal Coffers even like Cabal Coffers is playable in a two deck deck assuming you're running like you know 18 or 19 swamps or something and that's something that you can do but you need to be consciously aware that you're doing it and and set your deck up to to actually function that way
0: oh yeah i run into that problem in mono black all the time where i'm just like hey i want to run a bunch of these non-basics but the non-basic lands actively make stuff like a crypt guest worst un- uh, unless i have like an herb to help that out um, but that's just a, a kind of a weird balance that you have to push and pull against. You have to really be committed to knowing the, the basic land count there for sure. So very important data point. Let's move on to our next one. It's not the number of lands. It is the number of creatures in your deck. This is a really big sticking point for me. I really want to know the number of creatures in my deck, particularly because I play the commander, sir, Conrad, the grim who deals damage to people when creatures die or when creatures are milled, uh, basically when creatures go to the graveyard, it's a really great deck. Um, He even deals damage when creatures leave my graveyard, which is awesome, and his signature spell in that deck for me is the card Morality Shift, which switches my graveyard with my library, which is awesome, but if I cast the spell willy-nilly, it could deal a ton of damage, but if I don't know exactly how much damage it's going to deal, that is something that could actually actively cost me the game. I need to know how many creatures are in that deck if I'm going to cast this spell, because I need to know whether the spell is going to deal 30 damage, which might kill two of my opponents, or if it's only going to deal like 23 damage, which might not quite get there. That's a thing that I've run into a couple of times with this deck, so I really need to know how many creatures are actually in the deck so that if I cast the Morality Shift, I know, okay, I have three creatures in my hand, 30 creatures in the deck total, which means it'll deal 27 damage if I cast the spell with sir conrad in play that has absolutely been a piece of information that locks down the game for me with that particular spell that's not the only commander that cares about the number of creatures that you have in your deck though what are some other
2: examples well there's like sadisi brood tyrant who mills three cards whenever she attacks um she wants to have a good chance of hitting at least one creature whenever she does that mill. And in order to maintain that ratio of hitting one creature per three cards, it needs to be 33 creatures in that deck. And generally speaking, Sadisi's running things like zombies. It isn't a elf deck where you've got a bunch of one drops. And it gets tricky to hit that threshold when you're playing zombies that are a little more expensive. That's, that's a lot of bodies in a deck.
0: Indeed, yeah, and you absolutely have to keep that ratio up. You have to have a third of the deck uh, be creatures if you want to DC to actually get a zombie when you mill things. If you want because to be if you run yeah. down to. If you run to 25 creatures or something, the math is just not in your favor.
2: Yeah, if you want it to be consistent, you have to maintain as close to that number as possible. And it matters a lot for tribal decks, too. If you're using, like, Harold's Horn, for example, um, as a way to draw extra cards, it matters how many creatures you play of that chosen tribe. Um, The average Edgar Markov deck, for example, has 32 creatures in it. That's a pretty good number, so you draw a card one-third of the time, but that's one-third of the time for having 32 creatures, and that's, like, the upper threshold for the most part for most decks. So that means if you're only drawing one one-third of the time off Edgar Markov at the high end, almost every other tribal deck is worse.
0: Yeah, that's an important thing to know if you're trying to imagine, like, is this Harold's Horn? Should I treat this as card advantage? Probably not, because it will only draw you a card, quote unquote, one third of the time with that upkeep trigger.
2: Well, like I regularly whenever a new set comes out the last few years, we've very frequently had at least one or so tribal cards. That show up in a standard set or a um, commander set. And I oftentimes, you know, when spoilers come out, one of my friends will DM me, hey, is this going to go in your Sphinx tribal deck? And I'm like, no, there's 16 creatures in that deck. It's a 16 creature Sphinx deck. Nothing that cares about tribes is is consistent enough to really matter at all in that deck.
1: Yeah, I think a couple other cards that you need to keep in mind are stuff that uh, has text like when you cast a creature card. Uh, Beast Whisperer, the Great Henge, those types of effects, those care a lot about having a whole bunch of creatures in your deck. So being able to get as many triggers as possible off of those types of cards, that's another, you know, small little thing that you need to keep in mind when you are building your deck. Are you only going to be able to get 15 possible triggers off of the Great Henge because you're only, you know, you only have 15 creatures in your deck plus your commander. So those are some other types of cards that just broad sense need to be considering how many creatures you have in your deck.
2: Now, luckily, luckily, the Great Hinge also, you know, will do things like gain you life and be a man of rock and put counters on things and change your oil and do your dishes and <laughs> wa- watch your kids for you, paint your house. So there's extra things there that it'll take care of. So it's never going to be dead. But yeah, you have to really pay attention to those, those numbers for sure. But yeah. That's, um, even
1: something that's like amazing. Inspiring Commander, or if it ever came to paper would be great commander and it cares about all your creatures that come into the battlefield but mentor the meek is an actual card that does exist along these lines
0: yeah mentor the meek would be another great one if you are looking for card advantage in a white deck and you're you know you see that mentor the meek is a card that can draw you a card in white but then your deck actually only has like three creatures that Mentor the Meek would actually meet the condition of and draw you a card, well, that's not going to be worth it. That's not a reliable source of card advantage. So knowing the number of creatures and the nature of those creatures can be very, very important too. And Dana, I particularly like that you mentioned the Herald's Horn example, because that brings us to our next section, which is the data surrounding mana pips, actually. And this is a, a pretty interesting point here that uh, I remember about a year ago, I think it was uh, Dana Yu who brought it to my attention, and I've never been able to get it out of my head ever since. If you want to play that Herald's Horn. That only reduces the generic mana cost of the creatures of the tribe that you select, which means you really should be aware of how many creatures it will actually affect. And that also, that same principle applies to certain cards like Ruby Medallion. If you're playing a mono-red deck, this is a great artifact to reduce the generic mana cost of your red spells. But, let's say that you're running a commander like Duretti, of Aunt, really famous artifact commander for mono-red. His average deck plays 28 artifacts, and a lot of those are colorless artifacts. So that means, with his average of also like 36 lands, that means that he's the, the Ruby Medallion is really only going to cheapen the cost of like 36 red cards in your deck, including Duretti. And that's not even counting some of the cards in the deck that are red, but don't have any colorless mana in their costs at all, don't have any generic mana costs. Like uh, Goblin Welder is an example. It just has one red pip in its mana cost. So the Ruby Medallion won't help you as a mana rock Uh, for that card at all. So there's actually a lot of stuff. There's also, you know, dirty decks tend to run stuff like Ugin as well, also a colorless card. There are plenty of situations where this thing that looks like it's going to be really great, even in a monocolored deck, might actually be not that great for helping you with your mana. And knowing the exact ratio that you have of mana pips to generic mana costs can be really important when you're trying to decide whether to run mana rocks like the Herald's Horn or like the Ruby Medallion.
2: The other one that jumps out at me is Urza's Incubator. Um, which is a three-mana semi-rock where you choose a creature type and creature spells of the chosen type cost two less to cast. That seems really good, but I've seen a lot of times when people have that card in a deck where they only have, you know, 20-some creatures, and of those 20-some creatures, only, like, 15 of them take full advantage of the the two mana because they have a double colorless in the casting cost, and, like, one more has, you know, one mana and the other four creatures are just colored costs so like you're now spending three mana for for what is basically a mana rock that's only going to work on 15 cards in your deck why don't you just run a mana rock that's going to work on everything but lands for the most part
0: yeah yeah that's a really important thing to know those cards look really really spicy but sometimes they actually don't work on a greater ratio of your deck so it's a great thing to be aware of
2: Uh, nix lotus is one that i've really noticed this pops up with lately since i've tried running a couple different decks you would think that Nyx Lotus would work great in a monocolor deck where you're going to have, you know, all pips of that certain color, but outside of green monocolor decks tend to have to run a ton of mana rocks both for ramp and to do things that their colors can't natively do. So then you get a situation where, you know, you've got a good portion of your deck that's colorless. Um, in addition to the other things that, you know, maybe it's just got one pip in it. Um, and then if somebody board wipes, then you have a mana rock that does nothing until you start to rebuild. So, you just need to be really consciously aware of how much of that stuff actually works in your deck. You'd be shocked to how many times I think I, I would look at decks and I'll, I'll see a next Lotus, and man, you're probably better off with a Thran Dynamo. At four mana, because it's going to come into play untapped, and it's always going to work.
0: Yeah. Oh, the Mana Rocks is a great point, too, because a Thran Dynamo might actually end up being useless in some other decks that yeah. have a really high density right. of those pips, like uh, Niv Mizzet Perun, for example. Yeah. Thran Dynamo can't cast Niv Mizzet at all. So, is that as useful of a Mana Rock as something else like a Gilded Lotus, which is one more mana, but it's definitely going to help you right. cast that Niv Mizzet? Like, the, knowing the Mana Pips and the things that feed into it, the Mana Rocks that might be affected by those Mana Pips, is really important for sure. That's the data point that is is good to be aware of when you are brewing. And I think
1: there's other cards too, especially with Theris Beyond Death that just came out. Devotion is making a comeback. So I think there's a lot of people that are looking at some cards and, and seeing the Devotion and, and they're kind of throwing them in there without really knowing how well they're going to be able to support stuff beyond Nyx Lotus when it comes to Devotion. I mean, Nykthos, Shrine of Nyx, was kind of the original how much mana can we make in one turn or or Grey Merchant of Asphodel, old Gary, your your best friend, Joey. Those all care about so many things going on with, you know, how much specifically of one color you're playing. And they actively get worse as you're playing more colors, you know, because you have less support for a Nykthas to make all that mana because your pips on the battlefield are going to be split up between different colors. Um, What was it? Kronos? What was that old mechanic from all those years ago that cared about how many mana pips you had in your hand? I mean, wasn't it? Chroma, yeah, oh, there my. it is. Yeah. Chroma. Yeah, I mean there's all sorts of cards, not just with cost reducing, but actively how does the you know, how do the mechanics play out that care about the mana pips that are in your spell. So that is one thing to keep in mind beyond just the the cost reducers is cards like Foss Gary, et cetera, that all care about what is on the battlefield specifically.
0: We also have some data hiding in your deck as it pertains to some specific cards that we want to get to, but before we do get to those, we are going to pause for a moment to do our classic podcast segment, Challenging the Stats. There's a ton of data here on EDHREC, but we don't always agree with it. Sometimes we think that cards are seeing too much play. Sometimes I think that cards are seeing too little play. So what we like to do is challenge the numbers here, Matt, do you mind starting us off this week with Challenge the Stats?
1: I sure can. So mine is going to come courtesy of Corbin Hostler from Brainstorm Brewery. If you haven't checked out that podcast, they're pretty great. Uh, Jason Alt is our content manager over at EDH Rec. He's responsible for this podcast itself, actually. Um, but Corbin had a really good point, and he was talking about a card that he thought was primed to, to get some more exposure, and that is Ugin's Nexus. So the card that I—or the deck, I should say— that I think Ugin's Nexus is seeing too little play in is Korvold, the Fey Cursed King decks. Now, yes, Korvold is good with pretty much everything. I, I understand, but Ugin's Nexus is another one of those cards, kind of like the, the Iker Wellspring, Mycosynth Wellspring type of cards, where you want those are cards that you want to be sacrificing to Korvold throughout the game. So Ugin's Nexus is a legendary artifact for five colorless mana, and it reads: If a player would begin an extra turn, that player skips that turn instead. And then also, if Ugin's Nexus would be put in the graveyard from the battlefield, instead exile it and take an extra turn after this one. So this just gives you another opportunity for a beneficial sack outlet. You get even more value beyond just the drawing a card and putting a counter on Korvold. There's a Pioneer deck that actually did very, very well. Uh, 5-0'd and was playing a bunch of Korvolds and was playing a bunch of Ugin's Nexuses together and sacrificing those for just turn after turn worth of value. So... Right now, Ugin's Nexus is only in 1,191 decks total, and is not showing up on Korvold's page at all. I think that number might be pretty low in general, but in Korvold decks specifically, this should be primed to go up.
0: Dang, that's a really that that is not the kind of thing that I would expect. An extra turn coming, Junta deck. Exactly. That is definitely the kind of thing that will take people by surprise. So yeah, I'm super on board for that pick. Uh, We're going to go from a card that was underplayed to my pick now, which is a card that I think is overplayed. And this is actually a pick that we've talked about on a way, way, way previous episode, but it's been like nearly a year and a half since that particular episode, and the numbers are still too high on it. So I'm gonna challenge it again. This is the card Wakestone Gargoyle. Particularly I'm looking at it within the context of Arcades the Strategist, who draws you cards for your defenders, allows your defenders to attack, and uses toughness for your defenders to deal damage rather than their power. Wakestone Gargoyle looks like a card that will help back up that particular strategy. It is a four mana gargoyle with defender and flying. It's a 3-4, and Wakestone Gargoyle allows you to pay two mana, that's one and a white, to say that creatures you can Control with Defender can attack this turn as though they didn't have Defender. And this seems, at first blush, like a really good way to back up if Arcades isn't on the board. You can use Wakestone Gargoyle to activate that ability and allow your defenders to attack this turn. And that's probably why 16% of the over 2,000 Arcades decks are currently playing Wakestone Gargoyle. Except, Wakestone Gargoyle is missing a very important uh, key piece of information. And that's the thing that Arcades does, which is allow your defenders to deal damage with their toughness. Wakestone Gargoyle technically allows your defenders to attack, but they would still be dealing 0 Zero damage. If they're a 0-7 or a 0-6 or whatever, they aren't dealing damage with their toughness. So, Wakestone Gorgoyle, it, it's not a backup piece for Arcades. It is just a bad piece for Arcades, because you would actually need to already still have Arcades in play doing the thing for Wakestone Gorgoyle to let your defenders do any damage. It's just not a good card. 16% of the over 2,000 people playing this one, I immediately take this one out of your deck, just play another wall. Arcades will draw you a card for it and you'll be real happy about it.
1: Yeah, that, that's a good case of needing both pieces of that puzzle for it to, to really be effective makes a lot of sense.
0: Yeah, and there are other backup strategies like this. Assault Formation, for example, is a good backup card for Arcades. So there are other better versions of this effect if you are looking for him, but Wakestone Gargoyle is a bit of a trap, so don't fall into it. Dana, let's move on to your challenge now. I have a listener
2: suggested card this week. Uh, it came to me on Twitter from at lexb one hundred eight twenty three. And that suggestion was a card called Dubious Challenge, specifically in Tristani Discordant decks. And I'll refresh everyone's mind what those two cards are. Tristani was a commander from the most recent Ravnica block, uh, the most important part of that card that says, at the beginning of your end of step, each player gains control of all creatures they own. Dubious Challenge is a sorcery, uh, three and a green from back in the Kaladesh block. Look at the top 10 cards of your library, Exile up to two creature cards from among them, shuffle your library, target opponent may choose one of the exiled cards and put it onto the battlefield under his or her control, and then put the rest onto the battlefield under your control. Um, It's not a great card, except for that key bit of text in that Tristani commander, which lets you then regain control of whatever creature they pick so functionally in a trisani deck it winds up being four mana to dig down 10 and put two creatures for the most part directly into play one under an opponent's control and then you'll grab it at the end of the turn so as long as you avoid exiling acidic slime or something that they can use an etb off from that's a pretty good bit of value and because you're digging down 10 you really only need to have 20 or so creatures in your deck to consistently hit at least two, and that's very easy to do in a green deck.
0: Now, importantly, Dubious Challenge is a May. The opponent may choose one of the exiled cards. They don't have to,
2: but... But if they don't, then you put the rest onto the battlefield under your control so if they don't then you just take them both
0: right so that is what makes it so cool that's uh like a a misunderstanding about this card um that probably isn't immediately obvious which is why it's good to clarify here so yeah uh normally dubious challenge is sort of how i feel about that card (laughs) i'm gonna like dubious dubious. Uh, but i actually a, a li- little bit dubious um but i'm actually super here for it that's a really cool pick kudos to uh, the listener uh for
2: suggesting it i love And it's this. currently in zero tristani decks so I, I i would if i was one of the 83 people playing tristani i would for sure give that card a try
0: <laughs> awesome yeah thanks again to lex b10823 uh for calling that one out we are super happy for a listener suggestion for challenges stats. this is a great pick um You have made me a little bit less dubious about this dubious (laughs) challenge during the dubious challenge, the stats. All right, we're going to move into the second half of our show now. We are still talking about the data that is hiding in the deck, but we don't want to talk about the broad concepts. Now we actually want to hone in on some of those more specific cards and look at the data as it pertains to some specific cards that might be in your deck. Dana, do you mind starting us off with this specific data? What cards are we talking about? So we're
2: going to take a look at D-Spark versus Abrupt Decay. Uh, D-Spark is a two-mana Orzhov instant. It says exile target permanent with a converted mana cost four or greater and we're going to compare that to abrupt decay which is also a two mana spell instant Um, it can't be countered by spells or abilities but it says destroy target non-land permanent with converted mana cost three or less so one hits things four or greater one hits things three or less and we want to look at um, the most popular cards in edh rec and see what's more effective at removing them So, D-Spark hits 19 of the 21 most popular commanders in the last two years. Abrupt Decay only hits two. D-Spark hits 62 of the 100 most popular creatures in the last two years. Abrupt Decay only hits 28. Um, When we move into Artifacts, Abrupt Decay has an advantage there. It hits 74 of the top 100 most popular versus 26 for D-Spark. But in the other categories, um, it's either close in terms of enchantments. It's 45 for D-Spark and 55 for Abrupt Decay. And then it swings wildly back into D-Spark's favor. When you look at Planeswalkers, D-Spark hits 78 of the top 100 most popular Planeswalkers. Abrupt Decay only hits 22, so, when you're looking at least at cards that people frequently play, D Spark just hits way more targets than Abrupt Decay.
0: Yeah. And I think an important thing to note is that, for example, a lot of these top creatures or top uh, artifacts that we're talking about actually are like mana rocks, like talismans or lanowar elves and things like that, which might not necessarily be the targets that you really want to use a removal spell on. So that's something to keep in mind, too. But if you are looking at like, hey, should I use a removal spell like one of these, knowing the breadth of their targets is really important. This is you know pretty good to know whether they will actually be generally useful or whether they're going to be dead in your hand
2: and you know it's not relevant that often but it's worth noting spark doesn't say um land on it so you can technically hit lands which means if for whatever reason someone has one of the flick flipped exilon enchantments that turns into a land if the cmc of the other side is four or greater. You can actually technically use D Spark to exile a land. Or on Erixmathies. Yeah. Or an Erixmathies.
0: Oh man. There it is. Yeah. You guys are are, are nasty. Find ways to <laughs> make a stone rain out of a D Spark. <laughs> that's ridiculous. Yeah. So that's just a good thing to know if you are looking at these removal spells and deciding whether you would like to use them over other types of removal spells, uh, just to know what types of targets they can hit. This might be affected, uh Abrupt Decay, for example, in a tighter or more competitive meta Mm -hmm. might have more targets if that is going to be a little bit faster. But against the general swath of stuff that we're seeing on EDHREC, those are some numbers that we noticed that could be really important to help inform you about how the data applies to some of these specific cards. Uh, Let's move on now to our next one, though. Matt, what's up next? So the next card that we're going to talk about is Doubling Season, specifically when it comes to
1: Planeswalkers. Uh, So Planeswalkers that can activate their ultimate abilities immediately if Doubling Season is already in play. So that applies to 59 of the top 100 Planeswalkers from the past two years. So just over half are going to be able to come down immediately and you're going to ultimate them right away. Uh, this number is is kind of hampered a little bit, though. Um, a lot of the War of the Spark Planeswalkers aren't able to do that because most of them, especially at Uncommon, don't have any sort of ultimate ability. So we didn't really count them because they don't have ultimates. So they don't really count towards the 59. But it is something to keep in mind that just over half of any commanders that have ultimates, we should say, are able to, go to do that right away if a doubling season is in play. And that is typically one of the big reasons that people play a doubling season in a Super friend style deck.
0: Yeah, and doubling season is still good if you aren't ultimating a Planeswalker right away when it comes into play. But it is good to know that if you see a doubling season in play uh, and you're up against a, uh, a Planeswalker deck... There's a really good chance that the next Planeswalker they drop will ultimate, and that's one of the things that makes it so scary.
1: Yeah, it, it just having a Planeswalker ultimate out of nowhere, basically treating it as a sorcery, is an insanely powerful thing to have happen, especially if the Planeswalker sticks around afterwards.
0: <laughs> yeah, indeed. And there are some really nasty ultimates out there. So that is some... Uh interesting stuff to note about doubling season it isn't just there for the tokens and for the general stuff like their planeswalker ultimates is actually a, a pretty decent probability looking at the planeswalkers that people uh tend to play there's actually uh an above average chance that the next one they play is going to be devastating so keep that in mind if you ever see those doubling seasons in play for your planeswalker opponents uh, our next one here dana i believe that this particular card that we're going to look at the data for is um a a pretty big sticking point for you actually it's a card that you have a bit of history with
2: yeah it's a card that i've i've tried to play a couple of different times it just always feels bad to have in your hand and that's alms collector um, that was a commander product card from the uh, arrival cat deck a couple years back three and a white it's a flash creature three four if an opponent would draw two or more cards instead you and that player each draw a card um the big problem here is a vast majority of the most popular draw effects in Commander tend to just draw you one card at a time. Rhystic Study, Mystic Remora, Phyrexian Arena, uh, Guardian Project, Card Resurgent, uh, Mentor of the Meek, which Matt mentioned earlier, uh, Bident of Thassa, Coastal Piracy, uh, Necropotence, um, any of the Enchantresses, even things like Sylvan Library, that's an optional choice so if someone flashes in an alms collector you can just choose to play around it um real real the command- quick
0: there dana actually you mentioned necropotence that's actually one that doesn't draw you the card at it's all the
2: draw right technically it's, it's a card into your hand yeah so that's a crazy uh, popular
0: one that alms collector just doesn't even bother with whatsoever
2: right S- same thing with um uh oh, i just blanked on the name The the fact or fiction isn't technically a draw yeah. spell either. Um, and a lot of the most popular commanders that draw you cards, again, it's, it's one at a time. Tatiova, Chulain, Korvald, uh, Kadena, the Getrug Monster, Niv-Mizzet, um, Reki History Kamigawa. It's drawing you one card. So Alm's Collector is a, a, a card that really only does anything if someone's, you know, brainstorm it'll hit, but it's a relatively narrow slice of cards where it actually does any good. And you're in a white where you then have to leave up four mana to cast it and hope someone does something to draw multiple cards in a turn. Man, that feels terrible when they don't. You've just left four mana up, just so you can flash in a 3-4 cat. Yeah, there are a
0: few cards that it would be good against, stuff like Rishkar's Expertise or like a Windfall or something, but generally speaking, those are just not nearly as popular as the other effects that are drawing you cards just one at a time, which is why if people have ever felt like Alms Collectors, maybe a little bit lackluster, this is kind of why. It's because actually the most popular stuff really tends to do it in small amounts compared to the other things that draw cards all at once. It's just actually not quite as common necessarily.
1: Well, and one thing that I noticed about the, the cards that both of you guys just mentioned, Dana, you listed off Ristic Study, Mr. Kramora, you listed off a bunch of engine cards that just have a good ability to sustain card draw over a course of time. But it, like you said, it's all a bunch of instances of one individual card draw followed by an individual card draw, followed by an individual card draw, where Joey, you mentioned cards that draw cards in mass. And that's what it is better against, but those aren't really engine cards that you're worried about sticking around for multiple turns. Yes, Rishkar's expertise gets hosed by this, but there's so many more cards that you want to be worried about that this doesn't do anything to
0: Right. Compare that to the efficacy of like a notion thief, for example, yeah. where that actually does shut down those engines, which does make it way crazy powerful. Also, I feel the need to apologize to the folks at the command zone for all of the cards that Dana <laughs> just listed off right there. Cause that's a lot of images flying up at the screen. Um, we really appreciate all the work you guys do. Thank you. <laughs> all right. We're going to move on to the next one here. This is one that we've actually talked about before. Although I don't think you guys were on this episode because it was during Arthuros' crossover with some other folks from CMDR central CCO and commander social, um, this is actually data as it pertains to the commander Hactos the Unscarred. Hactos the Unscarred is a 4-mana, 6-1 human warrior who must attack each combat of Able. And as Hactos enters the battlefield, you choose the number 2, 3, or 4 at random. And then Hactos has protection from each converted mana cost other than the chosen number. So he has an Achilles heel. He might have protection from everything except two or except three or except four. Um, And looking over the most popular instance can actually inform us which of those numbers would be the most desirable to help protect him from different pieces of removal. So looking, for example, at the top 100 instance uh, from the past two years, eight of them cost two mana, stuff like Assassin's Trophy or Terminate that can target Haktos and would be able to get rid of him if his uh, weakness is the number two. Um, when we move to the number three, 13 of the top 100 most popular instance would be able to target Haktos if his weakness is number three. You've got stuff like Beast Within or Chaos Warp. Um, but then number four is the really interesting one because only two of the top 100 instance would actually be able to target him. And those are utter end and death sprout so really if you are deciding to play haktos the most desirable number that you're going to look for there is probably the number four because that is what will protect him from the most removal but then again there's a twist because nine of the top 21 commanders from the past two years have a converted mana cost of four so there's actually a pretty decent range of folks that he would um be able to be blocked by just sitting in the command zone. So that's an interesting push and pull. If you do decide to go with Hactos, he's not necessarily super popular, but he cares a lot about numbers and it definitely matters uh, to know those numbers and to know the types of things that you want to avoid and to steer uh, your way towards certain numbers if you can, for example, by blinking him, Um, just try to find a specific number that you want. It's probably the number four to avoid the most types of removal, but it's still important to know what those numbers look like and how those numbers pertain to other people's removal spells. Alright, let's move on now from Haktos into our next one, also a very, very dense card number-wise. So the next card we're going to talk about is extremely
1: numbers dense. It is Aetherflux Reservoir. It is an artifact for four mana, and it reads, whenever you cast a spell, you gain one life for each spell you've cast this turn, and then you can pay 50 life. An Aetherflux Reservoir deals 50 damage to target creature or player. That was errated, though, so it does say any target, since now Planeswalkers can be targeted specifically. So maybe you're sitting there and you're thinking, all right, I have 38 life, for example. And I need to get to 50 because I need to kill somebody this turn, get them out of the game because they're going to kill me. So how many spells do I need to cast to get up to that 50 life? So sure, you, you have that one life from your first spell. Then you gain three life from your second spell since it happens every time. And it adds one or adds more life, I should say, to each spell. Then you cast three mana or three spells and you get six life. And that number, it goes up exponentially. I won't go through all the numbers. This is actually one of the easier kind of cards to graph out how much impact it makes each spell that you've cast beyond uh if aetherflux reservoir is that first spell you cast this turn that gives you even less extra spells you have to cast but the n- amount of life you gain for each following spell just goes up astronomically it uh, i mean if you could see a graph it just woo, right up in
0: the air so Matt, a quick clarification, when you said like, your second spell gains you 3 life or your third spell gains you 6 life, that is total. So it does gain yes. you, the first spell gains you 1 life, the second spell gains you 2 life, but that's a total of 3, the third spell gains you 3 life, but that's a total of 6. And that's a, definitely an important thing to know because if you are, like you mentioned, at a certain life total and you want to know, okay, I would need to gain 15 life, how many spells do I have to cast? Knowing those numbers can be really helpful. So maybe even just being able to refer to a graph or something and be like, hey, if I cast 6 spells, how much will that gain me? Ah, 21. Then that's a uh, something that could save you a lot of mental energy i think um during the game so that you aren't sitting there doing a bunch of math and making everyone else wait for a little while while you're doing it that is
1: true and, and that's one thing just in general if you have a very numbers dense deck if you have more references on hand for yourself or you're just that familiar with your deck that's going to make for a much much better play experience for everyone at the table not just for yourself
0: yeah, it definitely saves you if you've already done the math separately, maybe a slip of paper, seeing a graph, um, something like that. And Maybe we can provide one here on the show as well, just for quick visual reference would be uh, really cool. Um, but that is definitely uh, the kind of thing that can be really important if you are playing Flex Reservoir or if you see it across the table as well. Dana, I've... Remember being shot down by an Aetherflux of Reservoir that I didn't think you had enough spells in hand or enough mana to be able to cast a couple spells to get you to that 50 life mark. And it turns out I was just doing my math really, really poorly. And you totally did have the resources available to do (laughs) it and completely surprised me uh, with a couple of quick instants that got you past the 50 threshold and just totally blew me out. So it's also important in your deck, but also if you see it across the field, too, it can be really important there, too. Yeah, for sure. All right. Let's move on now to another pretty numbers-dense card, but maybe the numbers aren't
2: working in its favor. That's the card Deploy the Gatewatch. Dana, tell us all about it. Deploy the Gatewatch is a six-mana sorcery in mono-white. Look at the top seven cards of your library and put up to two Planeswalker cards from among them onto the battlefield. Put the rest onto the bottom of your library in a random order. So at the point in the game when you can cast it, you're looking at a population of 86 cards in your deck, Now, at that point in time, your probability of getting exactly two walkers is 32%. So about one third of the time, your chance of getting two or more walkers, which is what you want. So you can choose what the best ones for your situation are is 55%. So a little more than half the time, but your chance of getting less than two is 45%. So again, closing in on half the time, you're only going to get one planeswalker. So no choice about it. And. Odds are it's also going to be a planeswalker that costs less mana to cast and deploy the Gatewatch. Um, You're also going to whiff sometimes, so you're going to spend six mana to do nothing. And that's assuming you have 21 planeswalkers in your deck, which is really difficult to do and still have a function.
0: Yeah. And so looking a little bit further into these calculations, these hypergeometric calculations, which is a thing I'm impressed I can pronounce, um, in order to actually reach what I would consider a decent probability that you'll get uh, two or more walkers. Let's say you wanted to reach a 75% chance that you would reach two or more walkers with the Deploy the Gatewatch spell. Um, To reach that 75% chance you would need to be running 29 planeswalkers in your deck, which I can promise you super do not have room for. Even the average attracts a super friend's dick uh, uses only like 20. Um, So it's just not the kind of thing that is necessarily going to be as reliable because about half the time it might get you just one planeswalker and that's not really good for a Six mana investment. And
2: that's like best case scenario. Um, you know, in my Jero deck, Jero being a commander that tutors up planeswalkers, literally the, <laughs> the longer the game went and the more I cast my commander or blinked my commander, the worse deploy the gate watch got because I've then pulled cards straight from my from my library into my hand. So whether well, Weatherlight Captain is kind of the same thing. Um, another, you know, commonly used planeswalker commander. It's a card that the further the game goes, it, it just gets worse in a bunch of decks.
0: Yeah, so that's a, a great observation about Deploy the and. the numbers probably don't work in your favor for that one and this is a type of calculation that we can also use when evaluating other cards that also allow you to look at the top several cards of your deck and pick certain types from among them for example another card that comes to mind is crew fixes insight this is a three-mana sorcery that lets you reveal the top six cards of your library and you put up to three enchantment cards from among them into your hand and the rest go to your graveyard if you can pay three mana to draw three enchantment cards that sounds like a great rate but how probable is that going to actually happen? Is that likely to occur? So let's use uh, that same metric that you were doing, Dana, um, on Deploy the Gatewatch. The average deck that runs this card, according to EDHREC, the average deck that contains uh, Crufix's Insight runs an average of 29 enchantments. And we're looking for three successes out of six cards. So let's do that math again. Starting with the 99 cards in the deck, remove seven for the opening hand, minus three for the cards that we draw... And then, you know, on our turn, then we play a mana, draw a card, play a turn to get to the three mana to cast this spell. Um, We've got a population size in our deck of 89 cards left in the library. So then looking at the actual math when we cast the spell, that means that we've only got about a 20% chance of actually hitting exactly three enchantments. But we have a 69% chance of getting two enchantments or fewer. It's a 34% chance that you'll get exactly two, and a 27% chance chance that you'll get exactly one. So, really, I think I still kind of like this better than a simple draw spell, um, like some type of divination effect or something like that, um, in the average Enchantress deck, uh, because it does have a semi-decent chance of drawing you a couple of things, but... It still has a low chance of whiffing completely, but only like a one-third chance of drawing three cards. It's not stellar. And every color kind of has their own little
1: types of effects, like Crufix's Insight, like Deploy the gate watch. You have cards like Lead the Stampede or The Antiquities War, pieces of the puzzle. So there's there's a bunch of these types of effects. We're just talking about a few that are, are fairly specific and the math behind them, but it's not hard to find any type of card that you want to be looking at the math in there. Uh, Lead the Stampede cares about creatures, antiquities war, artifacts, since art, and sorceries, any type of spell. You can probably have a card that will try to filter out for those types of cards. And,
2: and to use the Antiquities War, for example, I have my Vela Artifact deck as running the Antiquities War and Tezzeret Agent of Bolas, which do a similar thing looking at the top five cards for an artifact. I'm at 42 artifacts in that deck, and the amount of times I've a whiffed going down five is not zero. Like, it's happened more than once. Um, so... It's one of those things, you know, you can control it to the best of your abilities, but sometimes the math is just not going to be in your favor, even if, statistically speaking, you think you'd be okay. And
0: we went a little over analytical on this particular point, looking at Deploy the Gatewatch and the exact probabilities right. of getting cards with a crew fixes in sight. That is not the level of scrutiny that people need to be using in order to play these cards. <laughs> it is something that we're, like, observing the numbers to have, like, a, ooh, what is it actually? But really, when it comes down to it, Dana, you removed the card Deploy the Gatewatch from your deck before before you knew any of these numbers yeah. because you had cast it enough and it just didn't feel right. Yeah. And that is also really important. If we are too analytical about some of these cards, it takes the fun out of the game. It's fun to look at them sometimes, too, to look at those numbers and to see the exact data associated with cards. But it's also nice to just sort of lean back and let the cards do it themselves rather than us you know, looking for every exact percentage. Um, because. You know, there are plenty of those moments where you play Deploy the Gatewatch and you actually do get four Planeswalkers from among the top seven. There are plenty of moments uh, where you get you actually do draw cards, uh, three enchantments off of the crucifix's Insight. And then uh, any of the other cards that we've talked about, the Doubling Season, sometimes people don't have a Planeswalker that can ult right away. Sometimes they do. It really comes down to what feels good and what feels awesome. And even if you are... Going back to the very beginning of the show, you've got a Voltron commander and you decide, you know what? I think it would actually be kind of cool to move it from 11 power to 15 power. It doesn't conform to the 7, 11, and 21 numbers, but I really want to attack someone for 15 because it feels good. I mean, that's really what EDH is all about. So can't argue with that. The numbers can wait if you just want to attack people for 15. Sometimes the art matters more
2: than the science.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Well put. Well put. Well put. (laughs) I think that's a great note to end it on. This was really fun to look at. It's just a way that you can take a really nice magnifying glass to your deck uh, to see what specific numbers might be lying there, uh, what small ways you can see that might improve your gameplay by knowing the numbers, maybe like you mentioned, having them written down or practicing with them a little bit, but also just finding out what feels right and seeing if the numbers support that feeling to help you decide, should I use these cards? How should I use these cards? It can be a really fun exercise to do and see what numbers are hiding in your decks too. So with that, I think what we're going to do is just go ahead and call this episode to a close. I'd like to thank my co host so much for joining me and if any of our listeners would like to get in touch with us, where can they find you all? Matt? You can find me
1: on the Twitters. You can find my stream on Twitch at Mathemus55. That's M-A-T-H-I-M-U-S-5-5.
0: And Dana. You can
2: find me on Twitter at Dana Roach. You can find me on my other podcast a couple times a week, C M D R Central. And you can maybe find me walking my dog in a kimono. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <kimonos>. <laughs> And I'm
0: Joey Schultz. You can find me cordially dressed at Joseph M. Schultz on Twitter. You can find the cast at EDHRECCast on Facebook and Twitter. And if you have a question, a keen insight to EDHREC's data, or maybe a challenge of stats pick that you think we should know about, you can contact us at EDHRECCast at gmail.com. Thanks again to Josh the Quiet and the whole team at the Command Zone for handling all of the post production work on the podcast, making it look as spiffy and snazzy as it is possible to be. It's amazing work and we appreciate you guys so much. And thank you also to our sponsors. CCG player and CardKingdom.com. If you're interested in picking up any of the cards that we talked about, uh, you can click on the links right on EDHREC, and they will take you right to the websites for Card Kingdom or for TCG so that you can purchase those cards, and you can also visit CardKingdom.com slash EDHREC if you'd like to support the show. We will be back at you next week with more data and insights, but until then, remember, EDH wreck your deck before you wreck your deck.